Thank you all for being here tonight. Um, thanks to Analia Keen, who's been hosting all over the page for many years. Um, and thanks to my partner in crime, Melissa Brenneman, who's recording the program tonight. She's the co-producer of our Knox County Public Library's podcast, The Beat. I would uh, also, of course, like to thank Morris Manning for making the long drive to be with us here tonight. He'll be reading a few poems from his book, Bucolics, and then I think he has a plan to go from there. Uh, we'll be having a Q&A session at the end. Uh, but first, I'd like to give Morris a proper introduction. Morris Manning has published seven books of poetry. His first book won the Yale Younger Poets Award, and his fourth, The Common Man, was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize. His poems have appeared in Poetry Magazine, Garden and Gun, The New Yorker, and many other fine publications. Morris has taught at DePaul University, Indiana University, in the MFA program at Warren Wilson College, and at the Sewanee Writers' Conference. Currently, he's a professor of English at uh, Transylvania University in Kentucky, and most importantly, he has a brand new podcast series released just last week called The Grinning Possum. Please give it up for Morris Manning. Alan uh, failed to uh, acknowledge that he and I went to graduate school together and have been friends for 25 years. Good ones, too. I'm going to read um, just from Bucolics, starting at the beginning and go a little while. And for those of you who don't have the book in front of you, the poems do not have titles and uh, there's no punctuation. Uh, so that's different than fiction, I guess, <laughs> if this book club is used to talking about novels. There is a character addressed by the poems whose name is Boss, and there is a character who speaks who doesn't have a name. Boss of the grassy green, boss of the silver puddle, how happy is my lot to tend the green, to catch the water when it rains, to do the doing, boss, the way the sun wakes up the leaves. They yawn a little bit each day, a little more, for a tiny reason. Then, when the leaves outgrow their green, the wind unwinds them, boss. That's the way you go around. If you loose me like a leaf, if you unburden me, if I untaste the taste of being bossed by you, don't boss me down to dust. May I become a flower when my blossom boss is full, boss a bee to my blue lips that one drop of my bloom would softly drop into your sweetness once again. If I go round that way, I'll know the doing means to you what it means to me, a word before all words. Did you ever have a nickname, boss? A favorite color? Ever walk around in a circle for the fun of it? Do you snap your fingers, hold your breath? Do you put things in your pocket? Do you notch a stick for every sparrow? Is everything a little game to you, boss? A little peekaboo, a ring around the rosy, boss? We all fall down. That's the funny part. When it happens, do you keep a straight face or do you laugh? What's it like to always know the answer, never have to guess when you rest? Do you ever fall asleep? The night is trotting toward me, boss, as if you tapped it with the switch or clicked your tongue against your teeth. It's coming down the pasture soon. I'll hear the leather tackle squeak. I'll see your ankle swinging in the stirrup. Boss, you ride the night, but you don't need to hurry. No, you've been this way a time or two before. You've hauled your wagon full of stars. It's all 
old hat for you. You get here when you get here. Oh, I guess you're like the same old thing. It's funny, but I like it too. I like it when you ride the night across the sky as if it were a nag. A worn-out horse you don't mind riding. Oh, you get along. Your horse is made of silver drops. It clips like sleep. It clops like you. What color is your collar, boss? Is your backbone sore from bending over when you clap your hand against your thigh? Does a little cloud of dust fly off? Do you wipe your face with your shirt tail, boss? I'd bet my wages that you do, though I couldn't say for sure how much my wages are. They're probably enough. Oh, I get by all right. A beech seed here, a feather there, a locust wing, a wing as light as air. Besides, it lets light through. I get a double portion from you. I tie my purse strings tight, but put this in your pocket. All I have, I'd lay it on the table, boss, for you. I'd bet you jerk your lines. You hang your salty harness from a red nail in your barn. You pour your horse's scoop of oats. You give its tail a tug. You say, nighty-night, you spotted nag. It's funny, boss. I can hear you chuckle when you shut the stall. You're happy for a good day's work, a spotted horse. I wonder... If that horse's spots are real or painted on, it makes me smile to think about it, boss. Even field hands need a laugh or two, a rusty riddle, a twisty tongue. I wouldn't put it past you, oh, you sneaky devil, you cut-up boss. You're the haymaker, boss. You light the candle in the sun, dip the water in the rain. Oh, for the whole big picture, you're the painter, boss. I know it's you, the biggest boss of all. You must have a sack full of wind somewhere, a barrel full of salt, a recipe for stone, things like that. You keep them close to your chest. You keep your secrets, boss. You flash a yellow eye, then crow away. You're like a rooster, boss. Sometimes you're like a fox. Do you have a table, boss? Do you have a lantern? Do you leave a broom straw on the mantle when you blow into your hearth? Does it glow, boss? Do you touch the broom straw to the coal? Do you touch the lantern next? Is that how you make light like that with little more than just a breath, boss? What happens next once your lamp is lit? What happens after that? I like the weaving bees. I like the purple clover blossoms, the way the pasture runs away. I like in winter sinking lambs in straw, how I like bearing buckets full of water, waking up the sun. I like making up a little song. Oh, looking at the sky, I close one eye. I hold my hand in the air. I let the red hawk tip my fingers every day. I pretend I am a tree in your pasture, boss, a tree that holds one season underneath its shade, the season of hello to everything that's still or stirs because it is the only one. You swirl the dirt like nobody's business, boss. You put me in the middle, in the middle of that dirty swirl, that twirling chimney top. You stir the little cloud. It rises, then it falls away. You turn me like a you-know-what, a wagon wheel. I like the turning feeling, boss. You treat me like a hub. My hoe is like a spoke, but you're the one who turns, oh, you're the rounder, boss. You lay your finger on the rim. You give the wheel a spin. I know you're always turning something up. No matter what you turn, you make it want to rise. A little swirl of me, a little swirl of dust 
Is everything a wheel to you? Does everything you touch go up? You make it all seem easy, boss. The green, plus everything to do with green, like sticks, which once upon a time were green before they fell upon the ground as sticks, but sticks make nests. No doubt about it, nests make birds. So, boss, I think it's fair to say that birds must come from green. Like horses, boss, or pastures come from dirt with green together. Oh, you're smarter than a whip. You must have had good marks. You're a schoolhouse boss. I wonder if it had a bell. Did you pull yourself up by your bootstraps, boss? Did you live pillar to post for years upon years? Did you make do with what you had, however little it might have been? A pinch of salt between your fingers, a pouch of nothing tied to a stick. Did you tote that stick across your shoulder? Oh, I'd swear you did. You had a humble raising up, just like the moon. A little at a time, a little bit, that's all I need from you. I only need a pinch of what you've got. Besides, that's all you ever give. I'd make an oath. You live on air alone. You're like a rooster, boss. If you had just one feather left, you'd strut around the barnyard still. You just can't get above your raising, boss. Now that makes two of us the way you spring from nothing. Nothing, boss. I wonder if you hatched yourself. Maybe I'll pause on those. And go to brand new poems that I've been writing since uh, December, and I'll just I'll read a few of these, and maybe you got the impression from the from the bucolics that I read that sort of once you get started with that sort of mode and that rhythm, it's it's easy to just keep it going. It's, it's like lulling you know it's it's or or like getting in in a canoe and the current is strong enough that all you have to do is steer i enjoyed i was telling alan that i began working on the these poems in in 2001 and it took me six years to finish um of course i had other other things going on too it's not like i was 365 days a year for six years working on those. It's something that I don't often say, but I gave myself like a little challenge in writing these poems. And the challenge was you can't use the word and. So I didn't. <laughs> it's a commonly used word, so uh, to, to hold back from using it was kind of fun. And it allowed me to find ways around avoiding, you know, this common conjunction. And one of the things I'd learned uh, in writing this book, and in a way kind of immersing myself in it for so long, I learned how to feel the rhythm of the line that, that works best for me and I'm just sharing that. It, for me, the, the line that I hear, because it's what I hear around small town Kentucky, where I'm from, um, is a four-beat line, which in the, in the trade we would say iambic tetrameter. Um, and so as this book goes, the, the early poems are really heavily enjammed, and and the metrical pattern just kind of crunches. Um, but as the book goes, the poems settle into a, a steadier tetrameter rhythm. And that is because, maybe from what I read, the, there's some tension between this speaking character, sometimes called a shepherd, and boss, 
And a lot of it's because boss ain't saying much. Um, and the character's got a bunch of questions and curiosities and wonders. And over the course of the book, that relationship settles down. The, there's less tension. And so the rhythm of the lines mimic that. Ever since kind of arriving at this kind of intuitive uh, attraction to a four-beat poetic line, that's mostly what I've done uh, ever since. Um, so these brand-new poems are also in the same metrical pattern, but these are really different. So it's almost it's almost like in music you you can have songs in the same time signature, but they they can sound totally different from each other. I've enjoyed that flexibility. These are similar to what I just read, except uh, the the speaker here is unnamed. There's there are three characters in this. There's the unnamed speaker, who's sort of the the woe is me character. Then there is the squire, who's a bad guy. And then there is Jack, who is mostly a good guy. But Jack doesn't say a whole lot. Devil's walking stick. You must have had some fun with this, Jack. Surprise in your creation if we grant it all to you, and most of the time I do, this weedy stalk. Crowns of thorns abounding, Jack, at every joint as it grows into the world, plainly staking a kind of claim I take it you allow. The same, I think, of bittersweet, the vine, whose berries at the end of the long season turn the color of dried blood, as if we need another symbol to put us in our place and not know why we're here. The squire has a uh, sometimes used nickname, Mr. Mud. Dust my broom. To be honest, Jack, you're the least headstrong character I know. You just go along mosey-footed, and it's the squire, old Mr. Mud himself, who stirs up trouble, Jack. It's in his nature and in his blood. Sometimes it's a world of trouble, a kind of blues that won't let go. The whole world is shaking, too, uneasy, cowering, six kinds of worry thrown together, right? All in all, a terrible sight. But you're not troubled by it, Jack. Leastways, you don't let on that hell or high water ever throws you for a loop or gets your hackles up. Steady in the storm, eh, Jack? Is that a thing you'd ever say? Lord willing, before the end of the day, there's an old song I'm thinking of, and once I recall the tune, I'll hum it for you, Jack, because I think you'll like it. And sharing a tune is something to do when I've been moseying with you. Hear the rhyme in that one? That, um, I don't know if you all can really see this, but I got interested in the poems in bucolics are just what I call stacks, like hay bales stacked up. And that's okay, but it's visually not very interesting on the page. But I get attached to the things that I do, you know, it's like a habit. And breaking the habit is freaky because you think, I'm, I'm gonna have to start doing something that I'm not used to doing, What's, how's that gonna work? And so for these poems, I kind of got into like a, a four line and a couplet playing back and forth. So like a, a quatrain, which is what we call a four line stanza, and then a two line couplet. Just kind of, you know, like intersecting uh, and seeing how that worked and seeing what sort of music, you know, you might think this looks like piano keys. 
what kind of music I could make from this kind of arrangement. And obviously it's still in the process, so don't really know, but it's fun. It's fun. It's sort of like if you have experience playing by ear, you know, you hear a song, you go to the piano or guitar, you just start picking it out and figuring out the, the notes. That can be, uh, what, a nuisance for other people in the house, but it could be very pleasing <laughs> to yourself. To the Pharisees and Sadducees sprung up of late. Now, these are different because they have titles, punctuation. The word and is here. <laughs> to the Pharisees and Sadducees sprung up of late. Sack cloth and ashes and don't slack the rope that cinches grief and shame if bearing shame is part of the aim woe and penance on display beside in the field the dead horse is that the course of true remorse righteousness gives me the willies jack because it seems like such a brag and leaves no shuttered room for doubt for the dark of doubt or finding out what once was right now has the sag of being wrong but won't go back. And the brag comes out as something new, a sudden spurt of certainty so clear and stark it must be true, though untested by time or treachery. But I am backwards, Jack, from this. I know when I am wrong because I've wandered in the wilderness and found your ghost to lead me out. So the wilds have kept me from the throng, but being lost, I've had to pause and listen for the broken song, not unlike a woodcock's screech, a sound to make in the dark of night, a sound that only wants to reach beyond itself and find faint light in paling morning, then to sing for joy of being not alone and whistle through a fluted bone. The coldest cold is in the spring, as you yourself have noted, Jack. And now in the cold when the woodcock sings, my only song is singing back. A bit in the horse's mouth, Jack. I heard a preacher, Jack, whoop out a big amen for a man who'd been delivered from cigarettes, okay? And that has always touched me, Jack, because if you're going to bother to pray, one way is to start on the smaller end of things. No wisdom or kinder heart or help for the suffering masses, only a nudge to stifle a snag on the path of living a life with oomph and so forth. But who knows what that looks like, Jack? It's a comical dilemma, ain't it? Hell yes, I've got religion, Jack, and never not had it. In fact, I was raised in the church house doors whenever they were open and we were always there, often missing my father. Lord, I've come to terms with that, although it's still a bit of a burr. Raised in a faith of fathers and knowing he was missing, but out there, a wanderer, a soul alone, but in the end finding his way, though having little to show for it curled up and stricken in his bed, no declaration or salute. He got where he got in the end and died. And that informs my living, Jack, a ghost to haunt and round my praise or visit me on lonely days. When I was a youngster, Vacation Bible school was a big thing. And um, one of the songs I always loved, and Lord knows why, uh, Oh, the B-I-B-L-E-S, that's the book for me. I stand on the word, on the word of God, the B-I-B-L-E. So it was like religious instruction and spelling <laughs> combined. I think that's why I liked it. So I'm, that's going to come up in this poem. Smite. Civilizations can do a number on themselves. 
and hastened their demise. I've been reading about these matters, Jack, and the B-I-B-L-E. People mislead their own people, and people mislead themselves. Then things fall down. Down, down as a judge's gavel, like pillars and temples. Threads of the fabric begin to fray, and it all unravels. And in our time, we'll fall the steeples we've builded up and set so steep. That's when the blind start leading the blind to find the nothing they will find. Eh, Jack? Believe I'll head for the hills when spring is sprung with daffodils and perch up yonder to watch the fall when all of that begins. The end of time, or what have you. That's also in the book, and Jack... I've given it a look when God comes back to declare the mess we've made for ourselves is one we've made, and the payment back is long delayed, and the people no longer live as people or children of God. They live as if they're only children of themselves who believe in nothing and nothing else. That wasn't very uplifting, was it? Sorry about that. <clears throat> Nightmare in the light of day. Suffering, Jack, is all too cheap. But does it come from Mr. Mud, so-called, who, fiendish, likes to keep behind the guise of innocence a boundless hunger to appall? Or is it all an accident and not the twitch of a mind inside a head with a name attached to it? If it's nameless, Jack, I fear it more, but that could simply be a ruse. The squire so cleverly loves to amuse. He's never the aggressor, Jack. He's careful, always hiding how he sneaks along in sullen shadows. He doesn't want any of us ever to think there's a way out. He's happy for despair, that fink. But calling him a fink just makes the squire seem human, and he's more than that, right, Jack? Oh, he's a beast who slinks and roams wherever he pleases and fixes cold, unflinching eyes on everything his gaze surveys. You could say he has an appetite behind his look of lips drawn tight. It sounds like I know a thing or two about sin, dear Jack. It's because I do. And I'm afraid of going down the hole with nothing in it, Jack. Though a friend like you can drag me back. And finding Jack some rhymes for hell, it takes some spunk to do it well. Two altars, one is false. We've got some activity, Jack, just over the hill, and I'm pretty sure it's the squire. Up to no good, he's burning something that shouldn't at all be burned. A spindle of smoke is turning into the sky, leaving a lingering yellowish haze that shouldn't be there to sting my eyes. But I can't be bothered with his ways. He has a theme, he has a scheme, which always is to plunder my scene. And plundering that, he plunders me when all I'm trying to do, dear Jack, is ready the garden for planting time and mark which seeds require the moon and which require the season's signs so worms and bees can join the tune that turns the dead ground over and brings from underneath the living ground that calls deep roots to follow down and wait. Revival is my thing, and turning furrows makes me sing with all the holy moonlight sounds. I wake up humming in the bower that has not one ungodly hour, and though the squire may burn his wretched fire, a still small voice calls me to join the choir. I'll pause on that. Um, Alan 
mentioned that a, a friend of mine back home have put together a podcast, which is, that's about like, you know, going into surgery and, you know, asking for the, for the scalpel because the technology stuff isn't really my thing. Um, so sitting around uh, doing this podcast has been a learning experience, to say the least. Uh, we have 10 episodes, and um, for most of the episodes, we went to some place in Kentucky. And it, so it's like field recordings. And I eat, for each episode, I read a couple of poems and usually plunk around on the banjo and sing a sing an old-time song. Um, we recorded one episode on the broken-down front porch of a one-room schoolhouse. We recorded another episode in uh, the sanctuary of an abandoned church. We recorded another one behind a waterfall in Red River Gorge. It, it, totally, um, our idea was, let's just go see what this is and, and figure it out. And then, so what I thought I'd do for a few minutes is read some of the poems that I've used in this podcast. And uh, these are totally different. These are real tall tale oriented, uh, but they're also in the same four beat line. And I, uh, I get this, this is the, the nerd of writing for me is just like this obsession with getting rhythm into the line and then being able to take that rhythm and just make it go that way and make it go that way and express such variety or <laughs> it seems to me oral history someone back in the old time was nicknamed yellow who married the daughter of another coot named squirrel man job and together they hatched a brood of children like sturdy and ball and a pair of daughters minnie and maxie on through bad or formerly bad tom baker and then in the fourth generation one of the better bakers married a cotton gem gal and they had four and one of them had three and one of them had two and one of them was me and by now, we'd given up on all the allegorical names, but the first one we knew anything about came riding through the country one day and, needing to stop for the night, he inquired at the cabin of a man named Briar Ash, and Mr. Ash took in the traveler. But the twist was, in the morning, the traveler's horse, conveniently or not, was deader than four o'clock. So the traveler was stuck and went to work for Ash, and married Ash's youngest daughter, whose name was Philomela, Philomela Ash, later Lomi Ash Baker, and she was the grandmother of Yellow. And that's how we came to be. The horse gave out, and Zebulon Baker was stuck like a burr in a country he'd only intended to pass through, rambling innocently on his way to unknown destiny. Now I've been told when Briar Ash, the first of any of his kind, came here, not even a horse switch had ever been cut from a single tree. And then all of them settled along the banks of the various streams that water and wrinkle and lastly name the dark country, and some of them went early to death, and some held longer to the world. Long ago on Tejas Creek, a man got right with God. Tegis, T-E-G-E-S. It's a phonetic rendering of tedious. Long ago on Tejas Creek, a man got right with God. Now over here is where they burned his overalls once they were too worn out to patch because I found a handful of rivets that didn't burn, and some of them still have liberty stamped on the face. But finding one in the garden spot with liberty stamped on it also tells a different story, and this one involves the man, a hot day, a mule, and a plow that hit a rock. <laughs> 
an event which jolted the man and popped both of the buttons that clasped the jalouses over his shoulders. He next encountered gravity and shame, for it being such a scorcher and this man being a countryman, he'd taken the liberty of refusing any other article of clothing save the overalls, which now were shucked down to his ankles, and he stood there stupefied and just as naked as the day he was born, and all of this became the grist of legend, commonly known as the day when old Arcus Hibbard plowed himself plumb out of his overalls and thought it was such a tedious story, he'd have to tell it on himself or else only he and God would know it. Playing Dixie Rook. Y'all play Rook cards, card game? Playing Dixie Rook. I remember playing Dixie Rook one night with an older boy named Docky and his mother Zonny and some man Miss Zonny knew named Brack. And Brack and Miss Zonny cheated right through and slapped the table when the deck was done. Miss Zonny said if we'd been playing for nickels, Docky and I would be broker than a pissant's matchstick in the wind. And Docky answered with the truth, why hell, mammy, we're broke already. We're poorer than a pissant's toe. And so is everyone around. Miss Zonny cleared her throat and said, Docky, you'd better watch your mouth. I'm trying my damnedest to raise you right, and I'll not have you talk that way. This here's a strictly Christian home, and I won't have no cussing in it. Hell's bells were sitting on the porch, was Docky's not-so-wise reply. Miss Zonny slapped the back of his head. Hell is real, Miss Zonny. I offered. I've heard preachers preach against it. I'd allow the boys are right, said Brack. Just look around. If this ain't hell, we can't be far from such a place. I looked around. The chickens pecked at bugs in the grass. The dew had dropped as the moon was peeping over the ridge. I'd say it's farther away than you think, I said. The chickens aren't in torment. There ain't a hell for chickens, son, said Brack. Only hell that is is for us. That's right, Miss Zonny said. It's only a hell for us. Besides, a chicken don't know what's right or wrong, and God don't saddle the critters with the plight. But a boy had better get it right. Why, Mammy, you just rhymed, said Docky. I never meant to, honey. I say, sometimes it just comes out that way. Now there you go again. You cheated, Rook. You hit me in the head. You won't let me cuss on the porch, and now you turn to rhyming, Docky said. By God, what kind of Mammy are you? The kind who's going to love the hell right out of you, Miss Zonny said. And as for cheating, honey, listen. There's no end of cheating in this world, but every wickedness that is begins when someone tries to cheat and thinks he can get away with it. And sometimes, honey, that's what happens. This is a little R-rated, PG-13. The Conversion of Abel Glades. Keeping side meat on his plate was not a problem for Abel Glades. He always kept a couple of hogs and turned them out on the hillsides in the fall to fatten on acorn mast. And chancing upon a wild hog gave the neighborhood a spark of distinction. So most of us appreciated Abel's efforts in that regard. His trouble had nothing to do with hogs. The trouble he had was with his woman, Gladiola, or Gladdy Glades. Whenever he wanted to love on her, which came upon him with urgency and was indeed a frequent twinge, he said it felt about like grabbing a holt of a poke of broken glass, the woman was so bony and sharp. Why, Gladdy Glades couldn't cast a shadow on a sunny day, Abel would say, as if a person could be responsible for her shadow. One day when Abel's latest attempt to love on Gladdy was thwarted by her wispy, wrath-like stature, he said, Be dabs, woman! I wish you'd eat up every little vittle we got on the place and put a little meat on your bones. And I don't mean no little little. I mean a goodly amount of meat. It's time you doubled up on biscuits, else a breeze should blow you over. You hardly have a handful of backside, and a man with bigger hands than mine would wind up pawing at the air. Abel's dander was up on the matter of his woman's poor diminutive size. 
Now, Abel Glades, Gladys said, in reply to his frank admonition, I'd surely pack on a pound or two if you'd slather a little ear gravy on everything you say to me. The telltale signs of confusion pinched Abel's face like a dried apple. Reckon I've eat a host of vittles that many folks would deem unique, from skunk to crow to mixture unknown. I'd walk ten miles to eat a turtle. But I ain't never run across a vittle nor condiment nor spice that's ever been known as ear gravy. Just what is this here ear gravy? And why ain't I heard of it? Why, all it is is sweet talk, Abel. You just say something nice to me. Heidi, a compliment. Tell me a story in a tender voice. Tell me the biggest bunch of lies that ever was, but tell it sweet. And then I'll sidle up to a pan of cathead biscuits, you'll see, and lay into them like a circuit preacher on a Sunday afternoon in May. And soon I'll pooch and get all rolly, and all this loving you want to do will commence, and we'll just bounce and jiggle until our passion flares and flames and sparks shoot out the bed springs. Or we break the bed springs half and two, ever which way you aim this exhibition of love. I promise I'll hop around and make it fun provided you sweet-talk me and mean it. Well, this was just the sort of thing Abel Glades had pined to hear, not really sass, but a mild directive that no one gets a big woman without the token of air gravy, and it came so natural to Abel, sweetening up his speech and telling Gladdy she could stop a mule team dead in its tracks with her swishing, you'd think he was born with the sugar tit in his mouth. Some of these just, I don't, I don't know what to say. <laughs> Let's see if I can. I'll do one more of these. Treatise on milk gravy. When it comes to gravy, I was lucky because my first exposure to it, though I'd had plenty of gravy before, I mean the gravy that changed my life, was at the kitchen table of one Bozella Maddox, an old woman who was a neighbor around the hill when I was coming up, who sent for me whenever she had chores she couldn't handle on her own, which were always high in number, because she was old and thought giving a boy a chore would improve his character. One day, she had me crawl up under the house because the awfulest stink that ever was had filled the house and something under it must be dead. After reaching under there in the dark, I got hold of something shaggy and stiff and swollen up and runt by death, which turned out to be a beloved rat Bozella Maddox kept as a pet. The poor thing was covered in maggots and was indeed the source of the stink. I'm afraid it's Stumpy, Miss Maddox, I said. I know it's him because of the tail. Unlike an ordinary rat, tail-wise, Stumpy was saddled, sadly, with a short and bare nub. He'd come into the world that way, Miss Maddox said, and poked the nub when she first showed me Stumpy's design, and she was carrying him like a baby. But that was early in my acquaintance with Stumpy. This day was a sadder occasion. Reckon we'd bury him, Bozella Maddox said. You fetch the shovel, and now prepare the body. Miss Maddox directed me to dig a hole in front of the hollyhocks, a fitting place for Stumpy to rest, she said. Meanwhile, she'd arrayed Stumpy in old-style finery. He was wrapped in a lady's handkerchief embroidered with flowers and trimmed with lace. She set him down on the table and held a brief but solemn wake for the rat. He wasn't very big for a rat, I observed. But he was big in spirit, Miss Maddox answered, and that's, and that's what counts. Go out in the shed, honey, and see if there's a suitable coffin for Stumpy. I came back with a coffee can. She placed Stumpy's mortal remains into the can and began to bawl. Honey, you have to say the prayer. I'm so tore up, I'd only blubber. So I began. Oh, Lord, receive into your care 
Stumpy the rat, who wasn't exactly your servant, but he was a good rat, better than most. And now his worldly trials are done. We pray that you deliver him wherever it is a good rat goes. He was a rat beloved by all. Then awkwardly I interred the body and tinkled a handful of dirt on the can. Bozella Maddox was pleased with the service and drew me to her giant bosom. Laws, honey, you've earned your keep today. I've got some gravy in the skillet if you don't mind working for gravy. Well, the gravy she made was so creamy and smooth. Every chore I ever did afterward for Bozella Maddox, we settled up the tally with gravy. And not god-awful brown gravy, but milk gravy made with grease and flour and a lot of milk, so good you could slather it on the heel of a shoe and chomp right through the delicacy, knowing body and soul were fed. But before I left that day, Miss Maddox had one more chore to ask of me to make a marker for Stumpy's grave. It was sad toil indeed and took a week to get it done between my other jobs, but when I finished the task, I stuck it in the ground. Miss Maddox read the epitaph. Here lies Stumpy, rat, companion and comfort to Bozella Maddox. She sniffled and cried, and then she dragged me for another visit to her bosom and hugged the stuffing out of me. But this encumbered tale is why I stand for milk gravy and praise it. I did a host of other chores for old Miss Maddox, but burying Stumpy has struck me as a confession of faith, a rough first step to communion with gravy instead of the usual wine. Maybe I'll, I'll pause there, and um, if you all have questions, I'm happy to hear them and converse. Yes, Linda. Um, your Squire and Jack pieces are downright Shakespearean, mm. and I wondered if you ever thought of adapting any of your work for the stage. Linda, you, uh, um, yes, uh, and it's happened. It's been done, um, not in any like great circulation, but. Uh, my first book was adapted to a stage play. Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't know that. Uh, well, it's because it was performed at Transylvania University, and that's it. <laughs> um, a little local theater company that's based in northern Kentucky has done um, reader's theater adaptations from... Um, the common man, and um, my most recent published book, Rail Splitter, which is in the voice of Abraham Lincoln, is, and is very consciously theatrical because he liked going to the theater and was killed in one. This was during the pandemic. Our theater director at, at Transylvania had made plans for the f subsequent year's produc productions and had spent the money to pay for the production rights. And so when the pandemic came, there was no money to do uh, a production. So she, she and I got together and they produced adaptations of Rail Splitter. And you can, you can find this online because they, they, they put it on YouTube or something, one of those things. But because we took the pandemic pretty seriously, she designed, Tasha Fowler, our director, she, she designed the production of that so that two or three students would work together on a dramatic rendering of one of the poems. And then another group would do a different one and then so on. And it, it's pretty impressive. First of all, for, you know, 18 and 19-year-old young people working under those conditions. Yeah. 
Yes. Um, you mentioned working on what I would call a serial poem or a series of poems that like have a similar setting or the, the same speaker. And it seems like that's something that you, you do um, from time to time. And um, could you talk a little bit more about the pros and cons of that? What, what did you find challenging about that? Okay, that's a great question. And it very much connects to what Linda was asking. If you've got two speaking voices, you've got drama, you know, at its, at its base. You've got a dramatic situation. Um, you, you can have a dilemma between the characters. You can have unease between the characters. In the, the last poems that I read that are the tall tales, there's, you know, that, that's drama too, in my view, but it's just, it's way, way down to earth. Um, and it's the drama of ordinary people talking to each other and running into goofy situations and, you know, taking them seriously, which I think that's like some of the best humor is, in real life is, you know, you find yourself uh, realizing that this crazy thing has happened and you have to, you have to do, deal with it, but it's ludicrous also. Uh, but that's, that's fun. I also, I like, um, I, I like poems to have some kind of a setting, uh, a, that's that's visceral that's that feels like and it does it doesn't need to be complicated it can be a room it can be the woods it can be a hillside whatever um but that also for me is dramatizing i just i feel i feel i can i can reach my personal private struggles and concerns through the vehicle of drama, through other voices, through a kind of superimposed scenario, um, rather than, you know, just earnestly speaking my poet voice. You know, I, I, I just... But that's no different than like, um, you know, whoever wrote Going Down the Road Feeling Bad. Um, they've got me in the jailhouse on my knees. Lord, I'm down here in the jailhouse on my knees. Down in the jailhouse on my knees, good Lord. Don't want to be treated this way. Well, probably the guy that wrote that wasn't in jail. Uh, you know, but maybe he felt like he was in jail or... Something like that. So I like, I, I just, I, I, my interest is avoiding me. You know, I don't want my poems to be all about me. Um, that, that gets in there, of course. I mean, it's unavoidable, but I don't want it to be the, the thing that gets all the focus. One more? Yes. Um, I guess I'm interested. Uh, you talked about using the four-beat line in your um, in your poems, and um, I didn't know. I'm I'm reading um, Sidney Lanier's uh, mm. poetic criticism, I guess, for poetry theory. He talks a bit about the imagination of the ear. Oh, that's great. And I'm kind of wondering, like, how you how do, you, how do you utilize space on the page, maybe, when you're writing? Is it primarily are you interested in that that aspect of meter and the line, or do you do you do use indentation, or is there any exploration of? Well, the 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 middle poems that I've read, there's there's some indentation there. It's not it's not great. It's not dramatic. 
you know, I've got one poem where, you know, there'll be left, left margin, left margin, and then maybe way over here. But I don't know why um, I'm perfectly willing to admit it is a personal limitation that I can't bounce all over the stage, the, the page. Um, it's, it's just very old-fashioned to stick to that left margin. Um, and, you know, I'm sure part of my attachment to it is a, is a, you know, a kind of control. And as we know, control is okay sometimes, but you don't need it sometimes. Um, so I've, I've felt, um, with the middle batch of poems that I read, I've, I've felt I'm loosening up a little bit as, as loose as I get about these things. But the, what was the Lanier's? Well, there's an oral quality to your poetry, and I didn't know yes. if you explored the page some to achieve that, but uh, Lanier called it the imagination of the ear. I love that. That you get to the imagination of the eye. So he's talking about, well, we're readers now. So what's happening to this art of sound? He calls poetry an art of sound. I, I would totally agree with that. And uh, um, a later poet, um, oh my gosh, I'm going to blank it. He, well, I'm sorry, uh, but he, he wrote a, a prosody handbook in the, in the 60s. And he says in the first sentence, uh, poetry is the art of sound in motion. Um, which is different than music in motion. You know, music is, is an art of sound in motion too. It's just a specific sound. Poetry uh, is voiced sound and it, by design or by nature, it's it's in motion, or else it would all, you know, we wouldn't hear it. Uh, so it has to be moving. Um, this is something I say to my students, um, advocating, at least in their early stage, as eighteen-year-olds wanting to try their hand at writing poetry. I, I, I don't require them, but I, you know, I nudge them to try writing metrical lines because you're going to, it's going to require you to compose your lines syllable by syllable, which is sound by sound or can be, you know, obviously not all sounds have equal value, um, but training your ear to, to find voiced sounds that have just a little more oomph. And, you know, learning to, learning to play the line as if it's a musical instrument. The way, you know, I don't play the flute, but you got to get air into it. And it's got to be steady. And then you vary it as it as it goes a line of a poem can be, can be like that i think that a challenge is to you know to, to maybe do that but then vary it so it just doesn't become dull and and uh, Thank you, Morris. Thank, Thank you all.
Thank you for listening to and sharing this podcast from Knox County Public Library in Knoxville, Tennessee. Music by Chad Crouch. Explore life-changing resources on our website, knoxcountylibrary.org. Find our podcasts under the programs menu, including over 100 book and author talks. knoxcountylibrary.org, your essential connection for lifelong learning and information. Thank you.